And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we are back. Thank you, listeners, for joining us for yet another episode of the Startup Hustle podcast. Today's episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Thank you, Fullscale. We love you so much. Uh, I am Lauren Conaway, your host, founder and CEO of Innovate Her KC. And today... We have with us um, something of a phenom, a maven, if you will, in the nonprofit sector. Wanted to talk to Katie Lord. Uh, she is vice president of nonprofit development at Proof Positioning, and she is a thought leader in the space, um, a trusted guide to many, just an incredible, incredible mind, um, just absolutely brilliant when it comes to nonprofit strategies and fundraising and, and all of those things that, that are so important to those who serve. So Katie, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to, to have this opportunity and to chat with you, Lauren. Any opportunity I have to chat with you, it's yes, whenever. <laughs> Same, same. I feel I feel exactly the same. Um, so so let's let's hop right into it. And and I'm just going to ask you, you know, tell us, tell us about yourself. Tell us about proof positioning. Tell us about your journey. How did you get here? That, that, that's a lot of different questions kind of all snowballed into one. But just just tell us a little bit. Well, so how I got here is kind of one of those things where I think we all say like, I never, you know, I never thought I'd be where I'm at, where I'm at right now. And you just kind of have to pinch yourself. So I started out um, in college, like most people not understanding or knowing what I wanted to do, but I knew that I loved people and I liked to talk to people and I wanted to help people. So that's very, very broad with kind of no clear path on what that's going to be. So um, I got a degree in psychology and um, communications from KU, so Rock Chalk. Um, and fell into fundraising, which is what most people do. So I started volunteering a lot in college and decided um, that I really loved volunteering. I started out on the association side of things and then went into um, full, full on like nonprofit 501c3 fundraising, um, which, you know, I have to credit my husband. He was the one that um, knew I was volunteering and loved what I was doing with my volunteer work and was like, hey, that's a job. So why don't you do that and get paid for it and love your job? So, um, so from there, I worked for three large national nonprofits kind of in quick succession. And then around, um, my eight year mark, they kind of, you know, they say the seven or eight year itch is, is what you get sometimes and um, was kind of seeing some, um, I don't want to say problems in the sectors, but some opportunities for growth in the sector that it didn't really matter um, what organization's name was on the door, that there were just some systemic issues within the nonprofit sector, as I think we find in any sector. Um, so through kind of uh, chance and good luck and networking, 
I was able to um, switch kind of from the in nonprofit to working on nonprofits. And I worked at a consulting firm uh, where I focused on capital campaign fundraising. So my project sweet spot was about um, projects from about two to $20 million. And I had clients mostly regionally, but also had some clients on the coast, which was great. Um, but kind of like any, um, kind of like anything, uh, Capital campaigns are very rote. They're very prescriptive, and there's not um, there's innovation, but nobody wants to be the one that you try your innovation on. It's like, oh, that's such a great idea. I just need to raise my money, and so go try that on somebody else. But tell me how it goes, and then we could do it later. <laughs> so um, there's kind of not a lot of entrepreneurial spirit, so to speak, um, when you're being a steward of somebody else's money. You don't want to make the wrong decision um, and be perceived as, as wasting funds. Um, and so how it happened is, is ha happenstance again is um, I was working on a couple of campaigns, and um, Grant, the founder and CEO of Proof, who I'd known for several years, uh, I started running into Proof's work with some nonprofits, which was surprising because I always had them in my head as for-profit. So I called Grant up and said, I have two projects that you're working on and, you know, thanks for helping write you know, write some of the things I needed to have written, you know, thanks for helping with that. But I didn't think you did nonprofits, you know, let's, it's time for us to get coffee anyways, you know, let's chat about that. Um, and uh, he, we had coffee and he said, oh, I think we're only doing five or six nonprofits. The nonprofit space in Kansas City or just in general is a very tight knit community. Even though we're the third largest sector in the United States, we still, um, it's a very specialized field. And so everyone kind of knows um, what everyone's doing, everyone's business, if you will. And I thought it was odd that I had two clients that were working with him that that seemed a little too ha happenstance. So I told him to go back to the office and count. And he texts me several hours later and is like, we've worked with 25 nonprofits. Um, and so just kind of from there, conversations just started to happen. And I joined the team a year ago, actually, um, actually now, a year ago now, uh, I joined the Proof Positioning team to help build out the nonprofit strategy for Proof. And it's been just an awesome ride ever since. Um, even with the global pandemic and things, uh, we've really been able to, I think, um, focus in on what nonprofits need. Nonprofits need innovation, but we need to create almost safe innovation, if that makes any sort of sense. Whereas we can show results um, and we can show that it's a good value for investment for nonprofits and that the payoff will be worth kind of the uncomfortableness and the risk. So that's that's how I got here and I'm loving every minute of it. That is a, that is quite a story. And so, so what I find really interesting, and, and there are a couple of different things that we're going to talk about in there, um, but the first being, so, so you're kind of building use cases with with grant like i i know grant he's a he's a data guy with a huge heart um but i find it really really interesting that you know you you've you've touched all of these nonprofits, and i think it sounds like you have the opportunity here to kind of create um best practices and ways to absolutely innovate within an industry that is sometimes a little resistant to that so so i love that that you're taking on that work that must be tough 
You know, it is, but it isn't. So I would say what's tough is it's just education. I think nonprofits are always looking to create deeper relationships with their donors. They want to, um, they want to be innovative, but again, there is a bit of just protection and safety because of, again, you are being stewards of dollars that you raised and that people invested in you. There's also very much in the nonprofit sector, if you will, of like a gotcha culture of, oh, this nonprofit misused these funds, or we need to you know do an expose on how this nonprofit did a bad thing. People love those stories. And so um, while people want to do, uh, want to really give and, and try new things, there is always a little bit of that worry of, you know, am I investing my dollars wisely? And so um, what I would say is, you know, we started out kind of building the airplane as we were flying it. We had really good bones from everything that Grant and the team had done with the for-profit sector, but it doesn't always work in the nonprofit sector. Um, and so we were able to, really kind of drill down, if you will, into some core products that we created for the nonprofit sector that really address the uniqueness of their needs, but still keep the integrity of Proof's emotional data and emotional research and be able to offer that to a sector that, um, you know, to say is emotional is an understatement. Yeah. Well, so... And that makes total sense. And we're going to dive a little bit more deeply into that here in a second. But I want to, I actually want to backtrack a little bit. And I want to, I want to talk about your journey a little bit as a leader first. Um, You know, you mentioned that when you were in college, you, you volunteered a lot. And I'm just, I've always been really curious, where's your heart as far as, as volunteer, volunteerism? Where, where did you volunteer? What were your causes? So when I first started out, my causes were um, children and animals. So I originally, <laughs> so I originally um, did a lot of work with local animal shelters. Um, I lived in Lawrence at the time, and then also worked for uh, the March of Dimes, and then also the Douglas County Senior Services Center um, because I kind of felt like uh, you know we need to we need to take care of everybody on the spectrum. So it's kind of like a lifetime of care. Um, with my journey, what I would say I'm really passionate about right now is kind of threefold is I'm very passionate about um, childhood abuse and neglect. So I sit on the Jackson County CASA board and a couple of other organizations that focus on childhood abuse and neglect. And um, women's issues are always going to be something that I'm passionate about. We've got so much we need to do, specifically looking at numbers in the nonprofit sector, but just wider. And um, I have a three-year-old daughter and, you know, um, it's going to be different for her. (laughs) It will be different. Um, we've had so many great women that have come before us and it's our job to continue to, to blaze that trail, if you will. Um, and then also just, I think that there is again, things that need to be changed in the nonprofit sector. And so I would say, um, what I've kind of more recently become passionate about is barriers to entry in the field of nonprofit. And also, um, how can we rapidly innovate and create that culture of innovation within the nonprofit sector without it being stigmatized? So those are kind of my three, um, my three passion projects. I still love animals. I have two shelter dogs at home, which are great. Um, but right now, those are kind of my my main focuses. Well, I, I love hearing about all of that. We talked a little bit before we started recording about my my weird passion slash obsession with animals, and of course, women's issues just speaks to my heart. So. So let me ask you this. You also mentioned that, you know, you have a very supportive husband. 
And I'm curious, like you, you have a, a strong supportive network and how, how integral have they been to your journey and being able to do what you're passionate about? Vital. I, I, I would say they're the key. It's, it's vital. Um, I, I was just talking in the office the other day. Nobody's a self-made person. And so I do hate it when I hear self-made man or self-made woman. Um, that's a myth. People are not self-made. There's always people that help you. And I would say um, I have been continually honored to have strong mentors, strong advocates, um, strong bosses who have given me opportunities to flourish and to try things and to fail um, and have always been able to teach me new things. So I would say that it is a necessity to have your personal board of directors directors to have a strong support system, um, you know, friends and family and extended um, network in order to accomplish anything. You might know some things, but a lot of other people know a lot of other things that you don't. You need that information and you need to always come with an open heart and an open mind to what other people have to teach you. I've always said I would quit the sector if I felt like I knew everything and I will never quit the sector because I will never, yeah, I, I don't feel like that's a thing that's just going to, that's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, you just, you never can. And, um, I think it's a, a very dangerous position to put yourself in. If you do think, you know, everything, I think then you need to pause and have some self-examination during that time because, um, there is just constant knowledge. It's so important, um, to, not only look ahead at people that have accomplished what you would like, who are you know mentors and leaders and people that you really look up to, but it's also very important to have people um, that are just starting their journey because while you might feel like you're mentoring them, and I definitely have some people that I feel like I mentor, they mentor me just as much and teaching me like all these new amazing things that I didn't know. I just had a meeting on Friday with someone and she was sending me like all these new cool technology tools that you can use to thank people. And it was just like this great light bulb moment. And so, I mean, I feel like I got more out of that conversation than she did. And so um, it's so important to, um, you know, have peers that you rely on. It's important to have people that are behind you in your career and, and ahead of you um, really cheering you on. I don't, I don't really credit anything I've done to what I've accomplished personally. It's been a team effort. And, and again, just from a completely supportive um, network and just people believing in you and saying, yeah, you should do that. If your mind, if your mind says, no, I'm going to tell you to do it. And here's why. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that that's one of the things that I noticed about you. Like you are, you are extremely intentional about making sure that people feel acknowledged and seen in your journey. And, and I just, I, I love that about you. Um, you are, you are always, you definitely have a servant leader heart. Um, so, so thank you for that. And, and that's actually, it, it leads us into my next question, which is, you know, there's this, um, understanding that people who work in the nonprofit sector, you know, we're, we're underworked, we're underpaid, we're, <laughs> and, and so it takes a very, very special, type of person with a courageous heart to be able to commit to that and not get burnt out and not get frustrated. Where do you think that comes from in you? You know, um, two things I would like to add though, when you said, you know, we're overworked and underpaid, 
Um, and then we have compassion fatigue. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, and, 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 um, you know, I think, um, my parents were, I would say very, um, very, uh, integral in, in that, um, very much, uh, my parents were not the typical millennial, like helicopter parents. Like if something didn't get done, it was like, it, they would never pick up the phone and be like, you know, why didn't Katie get this? They would be like, okay, well, what did you need to do? What do you, you know, do you either need to work harder, practice more or pick something else? Yeah. And my, so my dad was in the military. I moved around a lot. So when you change friends every two to three years, you have to learn to be supportive. And, you know, without going too, too deep into personal, um, I definitely experienced bullying growing up. Being a new kid um, constantly kind of put a target on you a little bit as someone who is new and other. And so with, you know, sometimes kids that, had, you know, their parents' their parents had gone to high school together. Um, And so that creates um, sometimes a feeling of, I would just say, you know, dismissiveness or being dismissed. And I always said, you know, I, I want people, the most important thing you can do to someone is see them. Not necessarily, you might not know how to help them, but it's just important to be seen and to feel validated. And so, um, I think that's kind of maybe where it's come It's come from is just, you know, um, having to go in and not know anybody and be like, okay, I'm going to make new friends this year again, or I'm going to, um, you know, we're going to move again. And, um, uh, you know, and I would also, again, just say that my parents were always very supportive of anything that I wanted to do. I loved volunteering early on. My parents definitely demonstrated that in our home. Um, we volunteered as a family. We um, donated together. So it was, um, it was seeing that learned behavior, but then also, um, a phrase I like is kind of bootstrapping it a little bit. I mean, your parents don't go to school with you. So you kind of, you know, playground rules live. And so, you know, that's kind of where I would say it, it kind of came from. Um, but also it's one of those things that those experiences, I truly believe that sometimes when things are happening, you don't really understand why they're happening. And you're like, this is the worst thing ever, but something good's going to come out of it. And there's a lesson you needed to learn. You're just not going to see it right then. And so um, just kind of through that reflection, I think, you know, that's maybe where it comes from. But I, again, I just, I just want so much for people to just be seen and heard. Um, and again, I might not have the answer, but hopefully I, I know someone that can help. That's amazing. I, I I love hearing about that. And I've always been very curious about you in that regard. I, I mean, I'm curious about anyone who has a, as I said, like a heart for, you know, this, this very difficult work. Um, but in particular, you, because I've always liked you. I think you're a cool. Uh, <laughs> So, so, so let's, let's talk about, I, I want to kind of take the bird's eye view of the mm-hmm. nonprofit sector. So you, you referenced that the nonprofit industry has some systemic issues that mm-hmm. they need to work through. And so I'm very curious to hear your take on that. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, where to start? Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that that's a very big question, but I, I have full faith in you. So, um, <laughs> So talking about systemic issues, um, I mean, first and foremost, it's the scarcity mindset. Nonprofits are founded on scarcity. Um, We have a scarcity mindset that it's never going to be enough. We always need more um, and that there's not enough to go around. And that causes us, I think, to sometimes use tactics and um, employ... um, uh, employ things and employ like, you know, marketing and, and donor acquisition and things that are very transactional and really not at the heart of what our organization 
really needs to be focused on. I think it's a distraction to always just think you need more instead of really being thoughtful about what you have and how to cultivate that. People spend, you know, I always say that if, you know, you had a donor in your backyard who, you know, dangled a hundred dollar bill. And then you had a donor down the street that dangled a $50 bill. Everyone would run towards the donor with a $50 bill because they were new instead of turning around and seeing the hundred dollar bill behind them. You really, we really need to be, you know, fishing from our own pond, if you will. We need to be cultivating and building those relationships with the people that we already have that are already fans and that already love us. They need to feel the love. And I think we're constantly always chasing new donors who actually don't stick around. I mean, statistically, donor turnover is, you know, upwards of 50%, 50 to 60%. Um, We don't get a second gift from people that we acquire. Whereas we have people, like I said, that are, you know, really wanting to love us and we're not hearing them. So I think that's a huge issue right there. I think I I think I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the gender issues as well as the, um, race issues that we have in the nonprofit sector. Um, We are here for that. (laughs) Yeah. So first of all, um, women make up 70% of the sector, but the top 20% of uh, people who hold the title of CEO of that 20%, 80% are male. So of the CEOs, 80% of CEOs are male and white male. And then if you look at the other um, 20%, I think I read somewhere that 3% are people of color and women of color and the rest are um, white females. There is a gender pay gap in the nonprofit sector. I think we really need to be focused on diversity of the sector. Um, I think, you know, I've been doing a lot of examination, you know, recently as I, you know, I hope everyone has been on, on, you know, continually examining their journey, but um, we need to be partnering with and working with, our um, brothers and sisters of color to to be accomplishing the work that we're trying to do. We need to kind of step away from the white saviorism a little bit and and really focusing on partnering internally um, with communities and working alongside instead of um, I think sometimes the nonprofit sector and this is just across the board. I think we we think we know best. You know, we have the best solution to a problem instead of sometimes listening and understanding what those solutions might be Yeah, and stepping outside of that. Um, and so those, those what I, or what I would say are kind of really big systemic issues. And then I would also just say innovation in the sector, again, just being afraid to, you know, lose money. And so, and some of that, um, you know, unpopular opinion, I think sometimes we feel like our hands are tied from funders that, um, we can't, we can't innovate because we don't want to lose that funding. Um, there are definitely funders that are all about innovation and we have some very great ones here in Kansas city, but not all communities are as lucky as we are in that space. And so by trying and failing, sometimes you lose funding. So risk a lot of organizations aren't willing to take, even though we have a huge opportunity to fail forward and to bring the sector, you know, alongside our, um, corporate partners. We, we sometimes get the, you know, nonprofit workers are less than, and I call it like the head padding. It's kind of like, Oh, you know, um, you're so sweet working in the nonprofit sector and, you know, you must have such a servant heart. It's like, I deserve to get paid just like everybody else. I'm doing work like everybody else. We need to get rid of that stigma that just because I'm working here and I have a servant heart and most of us do that, that does not equal um, economic stability 
or parity with our um, for-profit community. And so I think that um, there's kind of that stigma that we still need to, to get rid of. People are programs. People are the ones that are coming in every single day, day in and day out, providing services. And so they're not overhead because you would never say a person is overhead in a for-profit sector. You would see them as, you know, customer relations or sales. Same thing is in the nonprofit sector. Um, the peoples are really providing the programs and services and are vital to the work we do. So they're not overhead. They are um, program impl- implementers, if you will. Yeah. One of the things that has always um, frustrated me most about operating in the nonprofit sector is the fact that funders hesitate to to give money when the stated use will be addition of staff. Um, you know, funders don't like to fund operations, basically, and and it's it, that's always been super frustrating to me because the, the, if you are truly you know, when it comes to programming and when it comes to expanding and scaling, to your point, you know, people would never hesitate to do that in the for-profit sector. People give you the ability to scale. People give the ability to operate with excellence so that you're not um, just kind of scrambling all the time. And, and, I, and I do feel like that's, that's an area where the nonprofit sector kind of falls down because, the, you know, all of these funders, they want their, their money to be going to very, very tangible support structures. But the fact is, like, people are the ones who run the programs, and they're the ones who make these things possible. Um, so that that's always frustrated me. And it's something that I've found time and time again, with nonprofits that I've worked with. Yeah, and, and to be quite honest with you, um, you know, COVID-19 has exacerbated that a little bit. Um, as far as what people are, are willing to invest in and, and to pay for. And I think that, again, um, you know, if you look at any venture capital or anything, you know, expanding a team is kind of a given um, in order to be able to do the work. And we need to look at it again, the exact same way that the need isn't going away and we can serve more with more people. And that is an investment in accomplishing the mission that our organization was founded on. Yeah. I, I So I think I, I watched a TED talk once upon a time. And of course, I'm not going to be able to remember the the name of it, but it was it was essentially a boiled down version of what we're talking about. The fact Nick that Pilata, love him. <laughs> it's, uh, oh gosh, it's, it's basically, yeah. What's wrong with the funding? What's, um, I can't remember what the title was, but it's, Dan. I can't remember what the title is either. And yeah, like he is like, I mean, I would love to see him in person, like business crush on that man. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's so, it's so important. And I mean, how many years ago was that talk? It, you know, a long time ago. And yet the issue still persists. And the, and ever, yeah, that's right. And yet we're still here talking about the exact same thing, which should show that the nonprofit sector sometimes is like turning the Titanic. It takes a long time to shift. Yeah. Well, and then another another thing that I kind of wanted to pick your brain on is the fact that there is this there there's this misconception, and I think that it it exists both within the sector and then on the outside looking in that nonprofits can't be profitable. There's this you know this misnomer that nonprofits are expected to kind of maintain. A, a certain level of revenues, and it, it, but that you cannot look at a nonprofit like a, a traditional business. I think that's completely irresponsible. You would, never say, you would never say to a company like, oh, you shouldn't make money. 
Yeah. Um, because, you know, the reason a nonprofit would make money, and I'm using air quotes, which you can't see, but make money is, you know, that's what endowments are for is it's for rainy days, like right now, like the problem that we're having right now with COVID-19 and how organizations are suffering. That's what having that extra cushion is for is to be able to continue to operate efficiently and effectively and not be stressed out about, you know, reducing programs, going out of business. It's just responsible for nonprofits to have a healthy balance sheet, to have money in the bank. And, um, you know, everyone likes to think like, well, it's not my money that's in the bank. Well, why not? Like, I mean, focusing on sustainability is a responsible gift as a donor as well. Um, because again, you're ensuring that your organization will, you know, survive if there's a natural disaster or, you know, a fire. It doesn't have to be something as um, as catastrophic as a global pandemic. But I mean, fires happen all the time. What happened if, you know, you lost your building or, or something of that nature? You need to be able to rebuild and to continue services. And so I agree. Like, I think um, when I look at organizations and I look at their 990s and tax filings, I always look to make sure that we're not, excuse me, ending at zero every year. Cause I think, um, that that's a little too close to almost living paycheck to paycheck, if you will. Um, and needs to be something that, uh, we change the narrative is that, that money's still going to go to work. And, you know, if the money's invested, the organization takes that money to invest in innovation and or continue to work programs. It's not like it's sitting there completely untouched. They always take some sort of, you know, distribution from it. Um, I consider it financial health and, and and I agree it's disheartening that that narrative again continues um, to persist. Well, and I think I I read somewhere. So, so right around the beginning of COVID um, I actually belong to a for profit for purpose business mastermind group. And, and I love belonging to this group, but right around the time when COVID hit, we all had to have a lot of really serious conversations about sustainability. Like how were we going to weather this storm when we didn't have, you know, we didn't have a playbook. We didn't have a finite end time. I mean, we're still Mm -hmm. in the middle of COVID-19 and Mm -hmm. there's no real end in sight. And so I, I think at one time I read, um, right around that time that most nonprofits have less than three months of runway operating yeah. runway in, yeah. in the bank at any given time. And that that's a really scary thing. Like when you look at the health of a traditional business, that would be, that's not good, <laughs> you no. know, no. Uh, and, and it, it's very much the same with nonprofits, but to your point, like even beyond just survival, you know, nonprofit organizations, when they, when they're operating with a surplus, they're able to take that surplus and they're able to reinvest it back into the business of service. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that that's kind of the, that's really the goal. So we have to start not just understanding, like reimagining our understanding of what nonprofit structures and strictures can look like, but we also have to change the way we talk about it. Definitely. Oh my gosh. Yes. I love that. I'm just like putting up my hands like, yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I actually, you know, to just kind of um, piggyback on what you just said, I'm incredibly excited about um, the B Corp model and um, for purpose companies. I think that is something that, you know, I hope that we see continue to see more of um, as I think that you can create the best of both worlds with both, with both business and um, philanthropy. So I 
I'm very excited to see that um, area of business continue to grow and flourish um, and, and to kind of see how that changes the narrative a bit as well. Yeah, there, there's most definitely been the, the rise of the, the hybrid model. And I, mm -hmm. I hope that, that is a kind of precursor to the kind of systemic change that we're talking about. That would be that would be incredible. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to switch directions on us just a little bit, and I'm going to ask you, so one of the things that you mentioned was the fact that when you, when you're operating in the nonprofit sector and you're talking about the needs, the, the need to innovate, um, I, I have two questions for you. It's a two-parter. Number one, what are some examples of innovation within the, within the nonprofit sector you've seen or that you've led initiatives in? Um, talk to us a little bit about that. And then the follow-up, and I can remind you of this a little bit later, but the follow-up is how do you talk people into innovating it within the nonprofit sector? I can imagine that would be very difficult. <laughs> yes. Um, so there's some really... Um, there's some really cool innovation that's happening in the sector. And, um, you know, to give you an idea of a time that it failed, but it was fun. Um, so I actually worked on a project um, uh, at my previous uh, organization where we tried to um, basically digitize consulting. We tried to create, um, we tried to work kind of on a consulting um, model that was um, distance consulting. And this was like before Zoom was cool and everybody had it. Um, and we had a, a partner on the East Coast and um, it was, you know, the uphill battle was education. And okay, why would I, you know, work with a consultant who isn't on call all the time? So it was a little bit more of creating um, kind of systems and structures and um, uh, creating uh, a digital version of consulting, if you will. And it didn't work out, but it was really fun trying. And the reason that I would say it didn't work out is because people were very afraid of not having that like human connection. I mean, I think if it kind of, you know, I, I, I hope that they're thinking about relaunching it right now, because I think that now that people understand that like we don't have to be in the same room and we can create this community virtually, um, it's, it's just, um, I, I think it was ahead of its time. I think it was too early. And, um, I think the education piece was just maybe not there as far as why would you do this versus, um, you know, having someone from your backyard consulting type of a thing. Um, so that was a time it didn't work, but you know, another time that it works and, and there's some great organizations that are doing it right now. Um, that we're, you know, even talking with it and, and partnering. And, and I think strategic partnerships, by the way, are just incredible. I think that's how um, the nonprofit sector is going to grow. I think that's how business is going to grow is creating, you know, win-win solutions, but it's really, um, it's using uh, analytics and data and creating data. It doesn't necessarily have to be data driven, but I would say data informed decision-making where you have the data, but you also keep kind of the human element into it um, as far as, as um, being able to take what you learn about people and break those down into segments and silos, if you will, and to be able to talk to those people the way that they want to be talked to. There's several organizations that are um, kind of working in this space that we kind of all do it a different, a different way. 
Um, and some organizations are um, focusing on like bequest giving and some organizations are focused on taking your, which this is kind of scary, but like taking your social media profiles and your activities on social media and then predicting what kind of content you would be interested in and um, kind of integrating that into asks and requests from nonprofits to build engagement. So there's a lot of really cool um, I mean, applications are just starting to peripherate even for the fundraiser on, you know, it used to be you had to go back to the office and you'd have to type in your reports and now you can literally talk to text and your report's done um, from the field. There's some really cool things about how you can actually automate um in fact, this is something I learned just a couple of days ago where you can, you know, create, um, automate video content and create that to create a personalized thank you to send to somebody um, through your uh, donor database. I mean, it's just, it's so, there's so much growth, I would say, just even in the technology space that I'm really excited about in how it can be integrated into philanthropy. Let's just be clear. Philanthropy, people give to people. They don't give to organizations and institutions. And never is that more true than the millennial generation. However, yeah. <laughs> ways to build and create community through the digital landscape that we've kind of ignored. You know, pre-pandemic, um, people were saying online donations were anywhere from 10 to 15% of their focus, as well as, you know, like digital content. I would love to see what that is now, because I think going forward, it's going to have to be 25 to 30% because, you know, we're in the age of, I can't go sit with my donor. I can't go shake hands. I can't go have coffee with them. Um, for extended periods of time. And so how can we use what we have as far as technology and still create those intimacies and that relationship that is so craved and is so vital to the sector? I love that. And, and I mean, the, the insight that you're dropping is just, just incredible. So thank you for sharing that. Um, so, so final, final conversational question. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that, that resistance to innovation. So how do you, when you are talking to clients through proof and I, and I have to say, like, I know that proof positioning does incredible, incredible work. Like I I've, I've talked to many people who have worked with proof positioning and the feedback is always just glowing. Um, but how do you, how do you attack the, the resistance um, just a, a, as a, as an organization or as an individual I'd be really interested to hear, you know, some of your, your tactics. I think, um, you know, I think there's kind of a multi-pronged approach there. Um, first off, what I would say that I love that Proof does just incredibly well, and I was so excited when I joined the team, is um, is uh, just content, educational content. Um, I would say we do much more content marketing than anything else. We try to, you know, kind of give some of it away, if you will. Um, in the fact that that's the right thing to do. And we try to just educate people. I think, again, education is probably um, the biggest opportunity that we have with proof. I think, you know, I'm going to say proof a lot in this next few sentences. So social proof, social validation. I think it's very important that we let our clients and potential clients talk to each other. Here's what was great. Here's what was, you know, here's what wasn't. Um, and that also just helps us get better. But I also think that um, we're very blessed that we have a lot of happy people that, you know, might talk about what their reservations were. Here's why I was kind of on the fence. Um, what I would also say is 
So how you talk to a for-profit company and how you talk to a nonprofit company um, are just a little bit different. We have to talk, both want to know ROI, but um, above that, they also um, want to know, you know, how can this create stronger relationships um, with their with their donors instead of just getting the sale. It's not just getting the sale, if you will, or getting the gift or donation. I mean, which, by the way, you have to use completely different lexicon. Still working on grant with that. Um, but you have to be able to assuage fears that this isn't a bad decision and also make it okay to say no. It has to be safe to say no. I never take a no whether I was fundraising and asking somebody for a million dollars or in any sort of situation. A no is not a no forever. It's not right now. Now's not the right time. And that's okay. You have to make it safe to say it's not right now. Um, what I what happened when we did come to proof, though, is um, nonprofits, we are very tactical people. I'm a tactical person. Um, and you, I, can, I, can, <laughs> I, can, I can see it in my daughter, too. Like, she's a very tactical person. So we're tactical people. Um, so something that I implemented when we came to proof is we have, we ordered folders and we created one pagers and leave behind something that proof never had because I mean, as a development director, as someone in the field, I mean, we leave behind gift packages. We, we have, we still have paper and we still have attachment to tactical things that I can revisit later. So even if now's not the right time to have proof, you might still keep that proof folder and six months from now say, okay, now's the time. I just had that happen literally the other day. It wasn't the right time. And, you know, out of the blue, I get an email. Hey, we weren't ready. I think we're ready now. So um, so that was something that I implemented that seems so simple and so easy, um, but it's kind of sector specific. We're just a very, you know, tactical or tactile sector. And so um, but also um, it's the little things. So I I like to treat all of my clients, current clients, past clients, potential clients, people who've said no one are never going to work with me. Um, I think it's important that we um, we keep those relationships we steward. Um, so, for example, when I w when we were home for three months, I sent I think 150 business just 150 cards out um, of just like a hey, how are you doing? Like here's a fun quote that I thought of you. Um, and I get, I don't know if they impact at all. I get so much joy out of writing these, <laughs> um, that, you know, it's, it's just important that we connect on a human level and if we can do business great, but if not, that's great too. And, you know, hopefully down the road, we can do something together at some point. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I would have to say that, that again, that's one of the things that I've just noticed about you, the fact that you are so open to connection and I love it. Um, so, so thank you for, for being who you are. I have a, I have one final question for you. You ready? Yes. Yeah. Your fun question. And it's kind of related to what we've been talking about, but, um, somebody hands you a million dollars and you can't spend it on yourself. Where do you put it? Oh, that is, that's a hard question. Um, it could be multiple answers. You can, you can break it up. Okay, can I break it up or does it have to be a love sum? Um, so what I would definitely do um, is I would set up like a, I wouldn't say a foundation. I would set up a donor advised fund and make sure that organizations that I was really, I really care about would continue to have some sort of uh, legacy and consistent income. Um, I would also want to invest in, you know, kind of angel invest or, you know, something where I didn't get returned, but just invest in B Corps and, and, and growing the B Corps and uh, 
um, some of those sustainable business practices um, for sure. And then um, I, those are probably the two things. And then I'd probably want to send up some sort of scholarship for um, uh, access to uh, philanthropy um, school or, you know, trainings or something like that um, for uh, 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 you know, just creating accessibility, I guess, to the sector um, for uh, women and, and people of color. That would be what I'd want to do. Amazing. Katie, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us today and illuminate so many topics that clearly need to have a light shed on them. Um, it's been, I, I knew it would be fun, but it was definitely, it was way fun. So listeners, once again, today's episode of Startup Hustle was sponsored by Fullscale.io. Also keep in mind, you can find us on Instagram at Startup Hustle Podcast or check out our YouTube channel. We will catch you again soon. Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. We do it.